Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. During the course of the fall, we had a survey, an overview of the Sermon on the Mount, and now during this uh, first part of the new year, we'll be coming back and looking in detail and having a study on the Lord's Prayer itself. And, uh, after we, uh, and then later in the spring, we'll begin a series on the Beatitudes. So if you do not already have a crease uh, in your Bible at this point, I'm sure you will in the, in the coming weeks uh, here in these few chapters. And yet, uh, the Lord has blessed us with a, with a gold mine of riches uh, from His Word on and what it means to belong to Him. Uh, this morning, our text will be uh, primarily Matthew 6, verse 9. Uh, but for the sake of context, we'll begin our reading in verse 7 and read through the entirety of the Lord's Prayer. Before we come to the Lord's Word, let's go to Him in prayer. Our Father, we do come to You with thanksgiving that You have called us by the name of Christ, called us to be part of the family of Christ, and called us into fellowship with You here in this place. We offer our praises and our prayers to You, and at the same time, we now come to worship You by giving our ear, our mind, and our heart to your word. We do so recognizing you've promised that it never comes back empty. So now we pray that you would shape us and renew our minds, renew our soul by the truth of your word, that you might help us to see not only truth, but the truth incarnated in the person of Christ. Lord, to him and to you, the Holy Spirit be glory now and forever in your church and through the world. We pray in Jesus. Amen. Matthew chapter 6, verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for the many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The word of the Lord. My first and only experience with air turbulence, or at least by flying, heavy winds I've experienced, was during a flight to Boston a number of years ago. Carolyn and I were invited by Mission to North America to go to Portland, Maine. Uh, They they wanted us to explore whether we would be willing to plant, at that time would have been the first PCA church uh, in the state of Maine. It didn't work out, we didn't go, but and then in an ironic circle, they called somebody else who happened to be friends with Tara Omquist, who went on and joined their staff, and now that I've come here, I see that they and we made the right choices uh, in Maine. But nevertheless, the best way for us to get to Portland was to fly into Logan International Airport. And so the day arrived, and I don't remember whether we flew out of Chattanooga or out of Atlanta, but we got there, beautiful sunny day, but our flight was delayed because apparently in Boston, they were in the midst of a nor'easter. The flight was allowed to go, and the, uh, uh, they decided that the storm was passing through, and so we were, you know, 45 minutes, a half an hour behind the storm. And so when we were landing into Logan International Airport, you still had the residual heavy winds. 
If you've not flown into Logan International Airport, it's different than some other airports. It's somewhat like Fort Monroe here. It just kind of juts out into the sea. And so in the darkness, especially after a storm, you see nothing but blackness. In the meantime, as we were coming in for the landing, the heavy winds would periodically, it almost felt like a ride at Bush Gardens at times. People were screaming. Things were, uh, people, it was really rather amazing. You can use your imagination and imagine what it was like inside that cabin. As people were groaning and grunting and screaming every time that the plane would seem to sway, certain that we were going to be ditching into the sea. At the same time, it became an incredibly spiritual uh, place within that cabin because I was hearing prayers offered up of all kinds, you know, moving, going into Boston, Hail Marys were being thrown all over the place. I think I heard a few now I lay me's for other people. And then, of course, the requisite Lord's Prayer was being uttered by many people, maybe not in unison by the entire plane, uh, but it was frequently being thrown about. It's not uncommon. The words we read, the Lord's Prayer that we also prayed earlier today are often associated whenever people find themselves facing any kind of difficulty. When people are gathering and there's something that's threatening them, and then for some reason before any kind of a ball game. It just seems to be something that is thrown out. People just pray. As if somehow this is the magic open sesame that opens God's door to His presence, His provision, and His protection if we just utter these right words mechanically. While I would never say that there was anything wrong with the people that were feeling frightened uttering the Lord's Prayer or people facing danger, or even for that matter, for teams before a ball game to use those words. It's really not the primary purpose or the purpose for the Lord's Prayer. You might ask, what is the purpose for the Lord's Prayer? Well, Jesus himself gives us the indication that the primary purpose for the Lord's Prayer is as a, as a template to teach us on how we are to pray, which should be an encouragement to many people. The fact that the disciples asked Jesus, how is it that we are supposed to pray? And Jesus had to give them a a small seminar on how to pray. It's a reminder for those of us who find prayer to be somewhat difficult that it doesn't come natural to us. For whatever the reason, because prayer is simply the communication, the speaking aspect, the talking part of a relationship that we have with the God who we believe, the God who has called us to himself. But most people find it very difficult. And so the fact that Jesus says, here, here's how you pray, it should be an encouragement to you if you struggle to realize that's your normal. Also that he's instructed us in a way that we are to pray, not necessarily the specific words to pray. But in another sense, the Lord's Prayer is also, because it's not just intended to be always mechanically used or recited verbatim. The purpose that Jesus is teaching us or using in the Lord's Prayer is also to instruct us. The, the Lord's Prayer serves somewhat like a, a catechism. It is a, a constant reminder of the truths about the God that we are going to be speaking to. And particularly the passage that we're going to look at this morning, as Jesus opens, we are, are taught that the primary purpose for your life and for my life is that we are to glorify God and to enjoy Him as our Father. That's the primary purpose that we have in, in this life. And as we look at this passage... Consider what Jesus offered as the beginning, the address, our Father who is in heaven, and the first petition, hallowed be your name. I want you to consider there's really two key 
characteristics here. One is the identity, and the second is the priority. We begin looking at the identity, our Father who is in heaven. Theologian John Stott, in his wonderful commentary on the Lord's Prayer, rightly points out that in teaching us to address God as our Father in heaven, Jesus' concern is not to teach us protocol, correct etiquette in approaching the deity, but truth that we approach God with the right frame of mind. See, our Father in heaven, as we begin praying, is a reminder to us who it is that we are speaking with, who it is that we are approaching whenever it is that we pray. And it's a fascinating address because it also reflects the, what theologians refer to as both the, the imminence and the transcendence of God. It's a paradox. Both are true, meaning both that at the same time, God is both near and God is, both, is, is, is near and beyond. And it's vitally important that we recognize both characteristics as we are speaking to God because otherwise we are not aware of who we are speaking to. We create a God in our own image. But recognizing both our Father and our Father who's in heaven, we begin to have an awe. We begin to get some sense of the incomprehensibility and yet at the same time of the identity of the very one who it is that we are, are speaking with. And so Jesus instructs us that we are to recognize who we're talking to and it is our Father in heaven. Part of this is fascinating as Jesus teaches us this because overall in the scriptures we're seeing that we see that there are over 200 names that God has revealed for himself that are used for him. Some of them we know, Jehovah, uh, meaning Redeemer, or, or Yahweh, the I, I am. In other words, I, I, just, I just am. You can't comprehend, but I, I nevertheless, God exists. Jehovah Jireh, God is our provider. You have El, El Yon, who means God most high, Elohim, God is our creator, Adonai is our Lord. There's over 200 different names that God has revealed about himself. Everyone is vitally important. Everyone reveals something about God's character. And so it's all the more amazing to me when Jesus is saying, here's how we address God. Here's how we're to be thinking of God, and here's how we are to speak to God. And the name that Jesus pulls out it's the name Father. That over and above every other, other name of God, all of which are important, none of which can be minimized. First and foremost, Jesus wants, to, wants us to consider God as our Father. And maybe it's because in the idea that God is our Father, all of the other attributes are encapsulated. But for whatever the reasons, this is the name that Jesus wants us to think of God when we relate to him, not at the expense of the others, but even with all of them, this is the one that God's using. And at the time that Jesus was teaching this was absolutely shocking. No Jew was going to refer to God as Father. It just seemed too trivial, too minimalist. Jesus doesn't use any, just any word for father. The one that he chooses, he grabs the Aramaic word for, for father, Abba, which means daddy, reflects more of a closeness, more of an intimacy 
than almost anybody, than anybody would have dared. Nobody before Jesus was going to refer to God as Father, and particularly not in, in a way that was so childlike, and so close, and so dependent, and so expecting, as using a word like Abba. It may not surprise us that Jesus uses the word because Jesus is the Son, whom even at the time of his baptism, time of his coming out party, that God says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And so we have no question, Jesus is sinless. And that itself may not be shocking, and it may not be shocking enough to us because we're so familiar with the, this whole thing. But it's an amazing thing that Jesus, who not only refers to God as his Father, then invites his disciples as he's teaching them to pray. But the very fact that he says, here's how you should pray, our Father. He's inviting his disciples to also relate to God, to see God, to view God as their father. And you and I are also invited to see him as father. If there's any question about that, Paul makes it very clear as, in, in a couple of occasions as he's writing to the followers of Christ. Because in Romans 8, 8.15, Paul says this, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And to the Galatians, Paul writes in 4.6, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. And so we see the whole invitation that goes, certainly understanding that Jesus was able to refer to God as His Father. But then the invitation and his instruction to the, His closest followers, the apostles, they too were able to call God, Father. But there's no question that also anyone who belongs to Jesus Christ has been given the right to call God Father, Abba, Daddy. Theologian Frederick Dale Bruner, thinking about this, he says this, when Jesus gives us the right to call his Father Abba, he gives us something of his own priceless relation to God. Jesus' greatest gift may come to us in the Lord's Prayer. I think that is slightly exaggerated that the greatest gift comes to us in the Lord's Prayer, but it may be that the greatest gift comes unpackaged when we recognize what the gift is to us in the Lord's Prayer. The invitation for us to relate to God as our Father, and yet at the same time to recognize that He is our Father who is in heaven. So when we recognize God as Father, we are called to remember just how close God is calling us to be to Him. That He's not far and distant, kind of aware and policing, but loving and nurturing. But at the same time, we need to recognize He is Father in heaven. Now the words in heaven are, you know, do somewhat reveal where, where He's residing. But more, we need to recognize that these words indicate his authority and his power as the creator of the heavens and the earth. Our Father, who is in heaven, is the one that has created, made, and sustains all things. And that as we think about this, the implications of our Father being in heaven tell us that he is both loving 
and personal, and yet he's also sovereign and powerful. And so those of us who are children of God, that we become children of God by faith in what Christ has done for us, we are able to take comfort in the fact that God combines both his fatherly love and presence with the authority and the power to protect, to provide, and to produce. This is the comfort that we have, and the, the very words that Jesus is saying, look, we stand in awe, and yet we stand near. And this is who you relate to, not only when you pray, but moment by moment, day by day, if you've committed your life to him, if you have trusted his gift to you, if you've been made right with him through his gift of Christ. Our Father in heaven is the identity that we need to be very aware of because only as we know who it is that we are speaking to are we able to grow in him and trust in him and find the comfort and the hope that we all are in so much desperate need for. It's also the words, our Father in heaven, is vitally important for us to understand to work against both a cultural pressure and something that may be just naturally born within us. Because as one theologian pointed out, it's really interesting, it's quite significant that, God did not, that Jesus did not instruct us to pray to our Father who is within us. As much of the world would say, well, there's a little bit of God dwelling within everybody. Apparently Jesus doesn't think so. God is God and he exists outside of us and yet in his grace he has brought us into his presence and then made a deposit by his Holy Spirit who dwells within all who believe. But we gain comfort and hope and perspective when we recognize that Jesus calls us to recognize our Father who is in heaven. That's his identity. But the second concept that we see is one of, of priority. And that is, hallowed be your name. Very simply, the very fact that Jesus lists this first this, uh, is an indication that it's a priority to him. And if therefore it's a priority to him, it's the priority of God the Father. Because Jesus says, I don't do, I don't say anything that my Father hasn't instructed, hasn't taught me to do, or doesn't want me to say. And so the fact that Jesus says, this is the priority Hallowed be your name. It also ought to be the priority of the lives of all who claim Jesus Christ because the whole point of being in Christ, God's redeeming us, is to conform us to be more and more like Christ. And there's no way that we can be like Christ if we don't share his values, if we, if we just simply claim him but don't relate and are not shaped by him in any way. Jesus says that the primary priority that we have in this life is to hallow God's name. Now, I understand even if we're all in agreement on that, and we could stop right now and say, okay, well, now we know our priority is to hallow God's name. I, I suspect for most of us here, the answer would be, the, the next question would be, by the time we left, oh, I know I'm supposed to hallow God's name, but what the heck is hallowed? I mean, it's not a word that we throw around very often in our day-to-day -day conversations. It's not in most of our regular lexicons, is it? I mean, even as I was thinking this week, I can only think of a couple of times in our culture that the word in one form or another even comes up. The first one that came to my mind was in the Gettysburg Address. 
You know, in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate this hallowed ground. Those who have given their lives have done far more than we can add or detract. And so the word hallowed is in our culture, in our world, but you know, let's get honest. When was the last time you had a conversation about the Gettysburg Address? I don't think I've thought about it recently until I was studying and trying to think about when in the world do I use the word hallowed? And the only other one that came to my mind is one that most of you are very aware of, and it does come into our vocabulary at least every fall, but most of us don't associate it with hallowed, and that's on Halloween, which simply means it's All Hallows' Eve because it's the day before All Saints' Day. And so in the church at that time, the whole purpose was we're going to have an All Saints' Day, a day where we're going to give thanks to God for those who have been faithful witnesses to us, we shouldn't come into this lightly, so let's set another day aside so that we can hallow the day and prepare ourselves to hallow God and his work through the saints. Those are the only two uses that I could think of. Neither of which necessarily tell us what it means to hallow. We just know that it's there. We guess. Most of us come somewhat close. The word hallow simply comes from the, the Greek agiazo. And that should settle it for all of us, right? Uh, just from which we get our word holy. And yet holy itself is not only what is it here. It certainly is appropriate for us to say, our Father in heaven, holy is your name, because his name is holy. That's a declaration of faith. That is not a prayer. Here, Jesus is saying to us that we are to be praying for God to do something, which is to make his name holy. And so the word hallowed itself is usually understood to mean to make holy. We somewhat verbify the word holy, which is not easy to do. But sometimes we get confused even with that kind of a definition, as if somehow we make God's name holy. We need to realize that this is a prayer for God to be at work. That God would make his name hallowed. People would recognize him as God and honor him as God. That he would be seen for who he is and not simply... the way we would think of him, but for what he really is. And that that name should bring awe and joy to those who hear it. But even then, we're sort of left with another question if we think about it. Which name? If there's over 200 names of God and we want God's name to be hallowed, which name is it that's supposed to be hallowed? In one sense, I don't think it matters. The names simply represent God. They tell us something about God. All of the names are valuable and all of them are worthy to be hallowed. It's the person that the names represent that is to be seen as God. So whether you're using one of the Hebrew names that he's revealed or a simple concept of the word God, 
It is what we understand by the word that we want it to be valued and recognized as holy. But on the other hand, if there is a name, then perhaps based on the very word that Jesus used that should be hallowed above all, it would be the word Abba. Because in that very simple word, the gospel is encapsulated in one four-letter word. The whole concept of God as our daddy doesn't just happen. Jesus is giving this right not to all of humanity to address God as daddy, but only to those who are the followers of Christ, only those who have trusted him, who believed him, and have given their lives to him, to his disciples, and to those who have come after them. Those are the ones who he's given the right to, be called, to call them Abba. But the scripture also teaches us how is it that we become children of God? It's not by natural birth. Now, God is the creator of all, and he is the generator, the genesis of all of humanity. And so everybody that's walking the face of the earth now, who has come before and who will come afterwards, everyone bears the image of God because all of humanity is created after the image of God, but not all of humanity is given the right to call God Father. Jesus even addresses that with other people when he is confronting them Look, you, you know, you talk, but you don't belong to me. And by the very way that you live your life, it's evident that you belong to your father, the devil. And so Jesus in his own teaching is saying that there is at least a swath of humanity that does not belong to God the Father. They, they have a different father. The scripture teaches us that we become children of God when we recognize our own brokenness and our need our alienation from God, even being at, at war with God, or God rightfully being at war with us, and God's response to that war is in the sending of his own son, Jesus Christ. That Christ gave his life, becoming like us, died and rose again, that those who believe have the right to be called children of God. And even if it sounds too good to be true, the scriptures reaffirm that, and that is what we are, is what John says. Those who believe. So certainly the name Abba should be hallowed because in that word we are reminded of the glory of God and his grace all in one. But at the same time, it also reminds us that there's another name of God that certainly needs to be hallowed, and that's of Jesus Christ himself because in him, who is God who has come in the flesh, we find the salvation and the hope and the love that we so desperately desire which is why we're told there is no name above his. Jesus is the name above all names. Certainly that's a name worthy of being hallowed. We need to recognize that we are called and recognize two things. For our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. One is that this is a rally cry for global missions. In our culture, people would declare, remember the Alamo as a means of encouraging, continue on, press the fight. Don't forget what happened there so that you have the courage to continue. It's a rally cry for the battle. Hallowed be your name is a rally cry for the followers of God, followers of Jesus Christ, to recognize that there are people in this world who are living without hope and who are in need of being reconciled to God, even as we ourselves have been. Romans 10 reminds us of this 
everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who come bringing good news. And so when we declare and pray, hallowed be your name, we are asking for God to be at work, and yet at the same time, it is a reminder to us that God has enlisted us and called us to be engaged in something that is greater than us. That we need to make a priority of allowing God's name, making God's name known throughout the nation so that the people that he calls from every tribe, every tongue, will hear the name, can believe the name, and can experience salvation, joy, hope, and freedom. When we consider the words, hallowed be your name, we need to recognize it's a rally cry for every believer to be reminded and to enlisted to reach those who are living without hope in this world, that they too can be set free and honor God, even as we have that opportunity. But when we consider what God has done through, uh, for us, considering the names of Abba, considering the name of Jesus, we also need to realize that it's not only a rally cry for global missions, but it is the heart cry of every child of God. It's a call to heartfelt discipleship. It's a confrontation to the self-centered way that we are so prone, so naturally, tend to follow God. It is in the face of the consumeristic idea of Christianity that permeates our culture in which we go and we participate to whatever extent that we feel like we need. Asking, what am I getting out of this? And not asking often enough, what is God getting out of this? Hallowed be your name is a reminder that it is hypocritical for us to be engaged in global mission and calling people to the name to follow Jesus Christ. And at the same time, we couldn't care less or we give him the least. As if somehow they are in great need. But we're just fine, thank you. The idea that we would go and say, Jesus is the name that you need to follow, and yet we go to him out of convenience. And even that we go to the one we go to, we don't even know much about because theology seems too stodgy, too hard, too difficult. So I know that God exists. I know Jesus died. Don't bother me with any more details. Try that with any other relationship you have within your life. Guys, hey, in a couple of weeks on Valentine's Day, tell your wife, I know all I need to know. I don't want to know any more about you. I'm sure if more than one of you do that, then you can all sleep together because you're not... It, it's, it's offensive, and we know that, and yet so often, even those of us who know how much God has blessed us, that's the way we relate to him. So we need to look at this realizing our Father who is in heaven, the identity of the God who has loved us. And hallowed be your name is not only a heart cry that God would be at work and he would use us in reaching the nations, a great privilege, but it's a constant reminder and it's a call for those of us who already belong to him, who already have the right to call him Father, to draw near to him and to grow in our understanding of him and to experience the blessing and the benefits of being in his presence. There's a commercial that I've seen recently that caught my attention and the more I started thinking about it, 
really is a beautiful picture of what it means to hallow the name of our Father, what it means to recognize that the priority that we have in this life is to glorify God and to enjoy Him as our Father. Many of you have seen it. Unfortunately, I can't remember who produces it because I didn't see it for the past two or three days, but you've probably seen it if you watch any television at all. It's a young girl, school-age girl, who is standing before her class on either show-and-tell or a career day. And she's explaining, she's presenting her father for part of her show-and-tell, and she goes into great detail about what her father did, both in the military and now that he's in a civilian life. She's somebody who's very, very well aware of who her father is and what her father has done. As the camera pans out, you see that during the military time, his time in the military, he was wounded and he had lost a leg. Nevertheless, he's continuing to work and contribute in ways that are benefiting other people in his civilian life. I think in the commercial, he's a dispatcher, whether for uh, the police or for fire, but he is still actively involved. And then she sums it up at the very end, and she said, he's my dad, and I'm so proud of him. See, in one sense, we look at that commercial and say, isn't that sweet? And yet, it is the exact reality that God is calling us to, that we know who our Father is, we know who our Father has done, and that we have such pride and love that it all wrapped together, that we delight in Him, and that love and delight that we have in Him spills over, that we want to share who He is with other people that are in our life and even elsewhere. It's not anything great. She didn't go in a campaign. She didn't get any billboards. She just simply loved her Father and told other people about Him and shared that she loves him. This is the call for you and me, an opportunity, a privilege, a responsibility. And yet we can't do it. We ask God to be at work to make his name great in the world. And by praying this prayer, we ask God to make his name great in our eyes. It is an awesome, awesome word that Jesus calls us to contemplate and to pray. Let's pray now. And after, I'm going to begin us in prayer, and then I'm going to invite you to take your bulletin and to join together with me in prayer. Father, we give thanks to you for the word that you've given us. And even more than the word that you've given us, the life you've given us in Christ. We pray that you would turn our eyes to you that in you we would find our hope and our joy as well as our salvation. That in you, Lord, that we would have our priorities shaped by the instruction of Christ in the work of the Holy Spirit. And together, let's join together in prayer, a prayer of response. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Help us to truly know you, to honor, glorify, and praise you for all your works and for all that shines forth from them. Your almighty power, wisdom, kindness, justice, and mercy, and truth. Help us to direct all our living what we think say and do so that your name 
will always be honored and praised.